I want to spend a few minutes with you this evening and cover some aspects of music and singing that I hope will encourage your hearts to pick up a practice that can help you during the weeks, that when we're here on the Lord's Day, you will enjoy the singing a little differently, that you will pay close attention to the words that we sing, that you'll understand the dates of which most of the authors of both the words and the melodies lived, and that you can appreciate a defining aspect of why our church is different from many others. I've entitled this Songs of Sublime Adoration and Praise because that is one of our songs, number 32, in our hymnals, and it's what ought to be the focus of our singing. Music in the church. We live in perilous times. I've taught you about those perilous times from 2 Timothy chapter 3. The peril is not famine. It's not the economic policies of our nation. It's not the politics of the world. It's not the United Nations. It is a degenerating brand of Christianity that will no longer endure sound doctrine, that prefers pleasures to godliness, and has teachers that will scratch the itching ears of their hearers. Music's a very powerful factor in that decline. CCM, which stands for Contemporary Christian Music, is part of this evil decline. And all I'm going to say at this point to prove that is by its fruits. Association condemns CCM totally. Because it goes hand in hand with what's happened to the churches in this country. One of the first things that a contemporary church does when it changes from a real church to a contemporary church, from a gospel church, from a Baptist church, to a nightclub, is to change the music. If you went to a pastor's conference that Rick Warren holds out in California for Saddleback Community Church, the first thing that he's going to tell you is to change the music. It is such a powerful medium, and it affects hearers so much and and changes churches so much. Songs that were once sacred are now despised. The songs that we're going to sing this evening, that the words I'm going to show you, are despised because they're made up of sound doctrine. The apostle warned that the time would come when men would no longer endure sound doctrine, but would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They want 7-11 music, seven words, sung 11 times, without any body or substance to them. We, we can do better than that, and we must. Christian singing, we reject instru- instrumentation in New Testament worship services because the Bible commands singing. We can no longer use musical instruments, or we can no more use musical instruments while singing, then we can use, say, cookies and milk for the Lord's Supper. The reason we cannot use cookies and milk for the Lord's Supper is not because the Bible says, thou shalt not use cookies and milk for the Lord's Supper. It's because the Bible tells us to use the fruit of the vine and unleavened bread. And so when the Bible tells us to sing, we sing, we don't play. Our words must be doctrinally sound. Our melodies reverent and sober. Both should be contrary to worldly preference. And we need to ask ourselves a question. Did David make music? Or did music make David? That's a question just for you to mull over in your minds. Because no matter where you end up on it, you're going to end up wanting music in your lives the way David did. Christian singing. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is a full verse that teaches us about singing in the church. Let the word of Christ. That is the gospel about Jesus Christ. Those are the teachings of Jesus Christ communicated by himself and through his apostles for us to know the doctrine of salvation about him. And that gospel should dwell with us. We shouldn't get momentary glimpses of it or lightning stabs of it when we're here on Sunday, but it should dwell in us. We don't come into church to follow an outward ritual. We come into church and come into assemblies because we have something in us. And what's dwelling in us is a love for the Word of Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in us. And we want it to dwell there richly. We want to consider it and wait and meditate upon it and love it and polish it and admire it and rejoice in it. It should be something that is very dear to us and our singing should reflect that. In all wisdom, this is spiritual understanding. From Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, as our brother Newell has been sharing with you in some daily devotionals, this spiritual understanding understands what Jesus Christ did for us understands and grasps the doctrine of adoption and is moved by it. So we want the word of Christ, the gospel, to be settled inside us in a rich and abounding way in all spiritual understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven so that we can teach and admonish others. New Testament singing is for the purpose of instruction. So the words that we sing should be weighty, and they should convey doctrinal truth so that we can teach. The spiritual songs should admonish us to our Christian duties and comfort us in doing them. And so we should sing for the purpose of helping one another. When the Bible uses this little combination of one another, it means that you have duties, you, the individual represented by one, toward every other single individual in the assembly, which is represented by another singular, another. One, another, duties. There's thousands of them in this church. Many thousands of those one, another, duties that we have. Before I leave teaching and admonishing altogether, how much can an electric guitar teach or admonish? How much can a drum set teach or admonish? Piano, organ, flute, or... Jonathan Crosby playing his tenor saxophone in the good old days, and I speak as a fool. None of them can teach or admonish, which is why we sing. We sing psalms. You know what those are. Those are the writings of David collected in a book called the Psalms. Hymns are songs dedicated to God in the second person in which we address Him directly and speak to Him and praise Him and exalt Him and adore Him for what He is and what He has done and will do. Spiritual songs are songs that we sing that have doctrine in them, but they're doctrinal songs about the practical life of a Christian, how a Christian lives, how a Christian faces temptation, to have hope, to put his feet on a solid rock, and to be not to be afraid in a storm, and all the other songs that we can sing, songs about the second coming of Jesus Christ, songs about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, would all be spiritual songs. 
This is how we understand these three distinct words in this verse. Singing. No playing, singing. This is why our church is different. We sing right along with all the Baptist churches before us up until 150 years ago. It's so interesting to know that Charles Spurgeon, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, the first megachurch, 20,000 would pack that place to hear Charles Spurgeon. I'm not going to tell you at this point in this subject why 20,000 came to hear him and how big that church was after that eloquent orator left that church. But I will just tell you that 20,000 came, and though there were 20,000 there, there were no musical instruments. Charles Spurgeon was the man that said that if we are going to start praising by mechanical device, we ought to start praying by mechanical device. I commend him for a statement like that. When D.L. Moody, who had to use a piano played by Ira Sankey for most of his evangelistic work, came to London, he didn't get that privilege in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. We sing because Colossians 3.16 tells us to sing. It doesn't tell us to play. It doesn't tell us to play and sing. It doesn't tell us to play anywhere in the New Testament. It tells us to sing, and singing teaches and admonishes one another. And it's based on the word of Christ dwelling in you richly in all wisdom. How much wisdom does a piano have, and how rich is that wisdom, and how much of the word of Christ is on those strings? In that big black box we call a piano. None. This is all about singing. And we do it with grace in our hearts, brethren, because God has saved us by grace, and that is the grace that is intended here. We are rejoicing in the glory of God and in His grace toward us, and so we sing with that melody arising out of our hearts from the grace of God's salvation toward us, and we address our songs to the Lord. We do it to the Lord, even when we're singing spiritual songs to one another. It's to the Lord because we're encouraging His brethren by the words that we are singing. This is what the Bible teaches about singing. David Jones, thank you so much for your kind remarks about the PowerPoint presentations. And I know tonight we don't have phalanxes and we don't have battle scenes and guys on horses, but I just explained this verse to you and I hope that you remember it all the days of your life. And that when you bury your father and your pastor, you'll remember it. Colossians 3.16 tells us what kind of musical program we ought to have in our church. I just went through it. It's a powerful verse. It's a wonderful verse. It sets our church apart from other churches. This is what we want to keep in our church. The apostle said in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. We sing because we're using the understanding, because our hearts have been taught by grace through the Spirit of God who witnesses and testifies to our spirit about the deep things of God, and we let them flow out of our mouths because in the assemblies of the churches of Jesus Christ, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the hidden wisdom, the secrets kept secret from the foundation of the world are revealed and shared among us. And so we sing with the understanding also. We don't do it just to make a noise. We don't get into a trance by repeating some little phrase over and over, nor having some organ, electric guitar, bass, or anything else throb our spleen. We sing with the understanding. The apostle Paul said, for I determined. 
Paul made a determination about what the churches of Jesus Christ should emphasize in their assemblies when he was among them. And we want to be an apostolic church after the order of Paul. It would be no problem if our enemies wanted to call us Paulicans, as they have some of our ancestors in the faith. Paul determined not to know anything among you. So we don't sing happy birthday here. We don't sing patently patriotic songs here. If you want to be patriotic, you can be patriotic elsewhere. Here, we are strangers and pilgrims in the world, and we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We don't want to know anything save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul determined that that should be the basis for the churches that he visited, and we want to follow that example. The apostle also wrote, But God forbid. Now those are serious words in the Bible. God forbid. But God forbid that I should glory. Any man who has a spirit and who doesn't have one foot already in the casket has a spirit. And Paul had a spirit. He had an intense spirit. And we should delight in glorying. And glory is the intensity of the human spirit in exalting something and making it very important. But the apostle has already told us what he determined to glory in. Here he restates it for us. But God forbid that I should glory, save. There's only one thing I want to glory in and have the full power of my intensity and spirit come out in. And that is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We are going to be different from the world because the cross of Christ makes us different. They despise the Lord Jesus Christ, so we despise them. We love the Lord Jesus Christ, so they despise us. We are crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to us, and we show it in our singing, because we glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they hate. And so the Bible tells us, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not an optional matter. We want to come into our assemblies and prove that we are lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want anyone who comes in here and doesn't love Him to feel very uncomfortable. Let Him be anathema, maranatha. You should know what anathema means. It means to be cursed. Maranatha is the coming of the Lord. Let Him be cursed at the coming of the Lord if He doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to show our love in our singing. The Apostle also told us, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom. We have a kingdom, and we should sing like we are citizens of a kingdom, and Jesus is our king. Military anthems and songs that are used for parades and processions are usually quite intense. And those that participate in them participate intensely, and we should as we sing to our king. Because we've received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace. Remember that grace that was supposed to be in our hearts? When we sing unto the Lord, Colossians 3.16, let us take that grace, the knowledge of grace, the grace that is implanted inside by the Holy Spirit, that spreads abroad the love of God in our heart. Let's take that grace, not squander it. Let's not let it be spent on us in vain. Let's use it whereby we may serve God acceptably. God has changed us so that we can serve Him acceptably. He has put His grace in our hearts His spirit there, he's given us a love for the truth, a new song on our lips, our feet on a rock. And we can sing 
praise to His name and glorify Him that way if we'll do it with reverence and godly fear. Our singing should reflect our reverent approach to the throne of God. Not that we're afraid of Him in a terrified way, but that we adore Him and His greatness and His glory in a respectful way. With reverence and godly fear, that is how we acceptably serve God, and that should be reflected in our singing. When we closed out our assembly on Sunday, we sang this song. Wow! I wanted to stay and just keep singing it. Look at these words, my brethren. "'Twas with an everlasting love." The love that God has bestowed upon us is called an everlasting love in the Bible. That God, His own elect, embraced. Thank God for songwriters that understood the doctrine of election and put it down on the page for us. There was a time in my life where I had never sung a song about election. Neither had my father and mother, even though they had sung many songs and were thankful for new songs that the Lord has put in our hearts. When when this song tells us, before He made the worlds, He had loved us with an everlasting love, and before He had placed the earth on her huge columns, those are other words for before the foundation of the world. Because columns underneath something is the foundation. Here's a man that knows the truth. Here's a man that believes Ephesians 1.4. Here's a man that believes 2 Timothy 1.9. Do you ask questions about some of the words? Long ere the sun's refulgent ray, bright, shining, glorious, brilliant. Primeval shades of darkness drove. Primeval, original, ancient. The darkness that was upon the face of the deep in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Before there was a sun in Genesis 1, and before that primeval or ancient darkness was driven away, we were loved with an everlasting love. Because he had embraced the elect of God. And they on his sacred bosom lay. And you do not fully appreciate the theological controversies that have been fought over things like this. This is the doctrine called the eternal union of the elect with Jesus Christ. Justified eternally. Forget faith before there was even a sun to shine and drive the darkness away in Genesis chapter 1. He'll have more to say about this. They on his sacred bosom lay. Our names were in the book of life. Our names inscribed on his hands. He knew us then as well as he knows us now. Praise God, our Father. Then in his love and his decrees. This man knows the truth, doesn't he? Did you enjoy singing it? Do you love to teach and admonish one another with sound doctrine? Christ and his bride appeared as one. Eternal union. Of the elect. We don't come into union with Him by faith. Our faith simply brings that union up to our minds and is the evidence of that union. We were in union with Him before the world began. Her sin by imputation His. Now this is meaty doctrine taken straight out of the book of Romans. While she in spotless splendor shone before the world began, we were in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ by the eternal phase. Of salvation. You say to this man, know the five phases. I can't ask him. He's got the eternal one down right here. Right. Oh, love, how high thy glory swell. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us is right there in those words. Oh, love, 
exclamation point. How high thy glory swell. How great, immutable, and free is that love. Ten thousand sins as black as hell. People today don't want to talk that way about themselves. Is there anyone here that fits that line? Because I fit it first. I fit it chiefest. Ten thousand sins as black as hell, and I know you'd all fight with me. Are swallowed up, O love of by thee. Praise the Lord. Loved when a wretch defiled with sin is how the Lord found us by nature, at war with heaven, in league with hell. Following the course of this world and walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, we were in league with hell. We were a slave to every lust obscene. I love an honest writer who will just tell it the way it is and talk about our depraved souls. Have you ever had an obscene lust? Praise God. A slave to every lust obscene who living lived but to rebel. Believer, here thy comfort stands. From first to last, salvation's free. And everlasting love, which this song has sought to describe in brief, demands an everlasting song from thee. The author of this song is John Kent. He dedicated a songbook that his friends forced him to publish in the latter years of his life with these words. Till round the throne the blood-bought race electing love shall bring, let sinners saved proclaim free grace and Christ exalted sing. What he's telling you is take your hymnals the burgundy ones in turn to number 453.
The author of that song was John Kent, as you can see up at the top of that page, from 1766 to 1843. He was a shipwright, which was a builder and repairer of wooden ships, apprenticed with his father at the age of 14. No formal education or training for song. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a professor. He wasn't a writer. He was a shipbuilder. His songs are simple, unrefined, blunt, plain, full of sound doctrine. I love them. Though he was blind in his later years, he still did the best he could to continue to edit his hymns and songs and poems that he wrote. He lost his wife and some of his children before he passed on to his great reward in heaven, yet he was faithful all the days of his life. His songs were excluded from many songbooks for his emphasis on election. There's little known about John Kent. Late in his life, friends pressed him to publish his songs, and so he published a hymnal that went through nearly ten editions while he was still alive, though he didn't even have it printed until after 60 years of age and when he lived to be 77. It's entitled Original Gospel Hymns and Poems, and it has about 260 of the hymns he wrote. Little more is known about him. We have at least seven of his songs in our old school hymnal, the 12th edition. Some of them do not properly give him credit, and we are addressing that with the publishers. Here's a picture of him. John Kent, a lover of Christ, born in England, shipwright by trade, songwriter, exalted election, Though ignored by many, he was published in 1803. Spurgeon included him in a number of his songs in Spurgeon's own hymnal. Charles Spurgeon, to be commended, that he rejected musical instruments, and they put together their own hymnal because he said there was no hymnal in England fit for their church. And how have we done that? We have three hymnals so that we can cover all bases. And John Kent died in England. Remember he said, Till around the throne the blood-bought race electing love shall bring, let sinners saved proclaim free grace and Christ exalted sing. So let's sing again. And this time it's 355 in your hymnals, but we're going to sing from the screen after we cover the first four verses because we want the last couple that are not in the hymnal. Brother Eric?
If at the top of that page you see the name Thomas Ken, that is an error by the old school hymnal company. John Kent is not well known, so he's lost sometimes for authorship of some of these songs. For some reason, this verse has given people who have sung this problems in here before, so I will explain it again. It's as plain as can be. Triumphant grace means that it triumphs. Triumphant grace means that it's victorious. Triumphant grace means it saves by itself. And it goes on to say that triumphant grace is not going to have man's free will mixed with it because the throne of God is not going to be divided with two such opposing things. Triumphant grace and man's free will shall not divide the throne. There is only one Savior. He's described in the last verse, Christ shall reign alone. Because man is a depraved sinner and cannot help in his own salvation, as the third line states, for man's a fallen sinner still. He has not improved himself with education, a better environment, or anything else. He's still a depraved sinner. So triumphant grace, God's grace and salvation, and man's free will of the Arminians will never be mixed up in heaven. They do not cooperate with each other. It's not going to divide the throne of God. It's all of triumphant grace. It's all of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Kent. Shipwright. What was his favorite song? Not one he wrote. But number 32 in your Burgundy hymnals. Brother Eric, come and lead us again. and Let's all stand and sing number 32 in our hymnals. Songs of sublime adoration and praise, ye pilgrims for Zion's oppressed, break forth and extol the great ancient of days, his praise and his distinguishing praise. 
thank Brother Orville for helping me with some research about John Kent. And Orville will do some further research and help the old school hymnal company get some of their authors correct so that John Kent gets the regard that he should get. A shipwright, lover of Christ, writer of songs that we love to sing. I hope that in tonight's short presentation you were able to grasp songs like that are full of sound doctrine. Sounds like that, songs like that are sober and reverent. Songs like that are loved by those who have their hearts full of grace. Right. Without their hearts being full of grace, there is nothing attractive about those songs. They are contrary to the flesh and the world. This is why we are different in this church. We don't want singing that is attractive to the world, or worldlings come in here to hear the praise band and be moved by the instrumentation and the volume of the uh, enhanced speakers. I hope that you saw that difference. And I hope that the Lord will bless you to love the songs that we sing and to think about their words. We just sang three songs that are wonderful in the terminology they have. I have three example hymnals from days gone by up here that you may look at. A hymnal to sit and look at and read through the words is like poetry, but many of them are in common meter so that you can sing them to tunes that you know. The hymnal that was mentioned in this PowerPoint presentation is in Google Books like most every other book that's ever been printed, and you can read John Kent's 260 songs. I hope tonight will provoke you to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope tonight will remind you that we should let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, speaking and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Having our hearts full of grace and singing to the Lord. Right. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for saving us and before the world lying on Your bosom, one with the Lord Jesus Christ by eternal union, including eternal justification. For You had made such a decree in Your eternal counsel that we would have His righteousness upon us, yea, before the world was created. Yes. We thank Thee for men like John Kent who have written down such sober doctrine for us to say. We thank Thee for the grace in our hearts and we pray that You would stir it by the Holy Spirit of God that we would love Thy Son and love to sing His praise and that this church in the days to come if Jesus tarries will be faithful to the apostolic order for worship in New Testament assemblies. Let us love sober, reverent hymns that are packed with sound doctrine. And Heavenly Father, let us glory in that grace and serve Thee acceptably yes. with reverence and godly fear. Amen. Take us to our homes, but O oh Lord, do not leave us there. Bless us with Your presence and stir us up to love Thee more. For we pray in Jesus' name and for His glory, now and forever. Amen. 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 You are dismissed.